0: Welcome back to Plenary Session. This is the audio video edition. This is the paper you're waiting for, teclistimab. Now, before we get to teclistimab, we've got to talk about the channel. This is Plenary Session podcast. We've been going since 2018. We're the most popular oncology podcast by by a fair bit, and we talk about the clinical appraisal, the critical appraisal of clinical trials on this channel for the most part. We also get into all sorts of evidence-based medicine and all sorts of healthcare policy. Now, I'm like you. I'm listening to the audio feed just like you are at home, but I would encourage you if you're listening to the audio feed to get, get over to video just for my Asko series. Just for my Asko series, get over to video. I've got slides. I've got visuals. Picture's worth a thousand words. You want to be on the video for this, so move on over if you're listening to the audio feed. I'll be back soon with more audio content. We'll be back with Timothy Olivier. We're going to finish that Malignant Journal Club. We've got a whole bunch more articles planned. People are sending me recommendations. I've gotten more emails than I know what to do with about the topics we've covered. Let's just review what we've covered so far on this channel. You can go back. But I'm hitting all the, so far all the New England Journal Medicine papers that came out during ASCO. I did Shine. I did... Dynamic, well, uh, shine. Of course, I wasn't so po- I wasn't a big fan of, and I think uh, neither is a lot of people. Then I did dynamic. I found some problems with that that I think actually flipped a few votes. We did determination, as in we're determined to keep offering transplant, and um, had some thoughts about that. We did destiny breast four, which you know I would have had more thoughts if I knew any of the pre-treatment or any of the post-treatment. And then I did. The Dostarlamab in stage 2-3 rectal cancer, and I gave a glowing review. You're not going to get anything more positive than that from me. And uh, I'm not one to uh, blow smoke, just to blow smoke, but that was quite impressive. And we outlined in that video a new clinical trial called uh, uh, sort of an uncontrolled cohort study that triggers randomization when equipoise is reached. Today we're going to talk about Teclistomab, relapse refractory multiple myeloma. We're back. Multiple myeloma, new product. Very interesting. Janssen product, BCMA bite. Let's hit it. Let's hit it. I got a lot to say about this. Ticlistamab relapse refractory multiple myeloma. Phase 1-2 study. The best phases in oncology. We get a lot of phase 1-2 studies. This is the visual of my prior videos. You go check it out. Whether people want to admit it or not, these are, I believe, the most talked about or even subtweeted videos in asco these are the videos that people are talking about they're not talking about the presentations they're talking about my coverage of the presentations for better or worse some of them love it some of them don't like it but you know they're talking about these videos these are the videos you need to watch also my bias i think they're more entertaining than the actual presentations no offense to the presenters but um this is uh, a different media this is a different media it's a freer media in these in these videos we hit these principles one Combining drugs that were previously used in sequence, PFS should not be the endpoint. Bishal Gay and I wrote that in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology a few years ago. It makes no sense. It's obvious that makes no sense. You do A plus B, then C, and then you do versus A, B, C. PFS1 makes no sense because it doesn't tell you the impact of C and whether or not it can salvage the outcomes of A and B. And that's the case of Shine. I mean, this is a rookie mistake. Come on, it's a rookie mistake. You can read the book, Malignant explains it more. Post-progression care. It's really important. Post-progression care is up to the standard of the nations whose practice you want to change. And the United States, when you progress on BR and you have mantle cell lymphoma, you get ibrutinib in the clinical trial you didn't and that's kind of a big problem it is a big problem for subsequent endpoints and i i didn't say it in the video but maybe dare i maybe i did say it that in br then i might even have a superior os uh than what they did in the experimental arm pre-treatment post-treatment if you're going to roll into breast cancer and come into the third line chemo You gotta tell me what people got before, you gotta tell me what people got after. I don't know how anyone's reviewing that paper when they just don't know any pre-treatment post-treatment. That was my problem with Destiny 4 Breast. Non-inferiority margin size. A non-inferiority margin is like a parallel parking spot. A good parallel parker will park in a very tight margin. The tightest margin is actually called an equivalent study. It's a non-inferiority margin so tight that you would consider it for all practical purposes equivalent. But the non-inferiority margin used in dynamic is 8.5 percentage points of DFS, which is so big. You could parallel park a school bus in that margin, and that's not helpful to anybody. And there were a bunch of other problems in that study. Burden of proof. The burden of proof in oncology is on the person who offers a costly, toxic intervention when all of the ground rules have shifted. And that's the transplanter in myeloma. You can't wait for some third party to prove to you it doesn't improve survival. You got to prove in this world of new drugs that you're always celebrating and always reminding people how much these new drugs have added. You got to prove your transplant's still relevant. And you have failed in determination. There's no OS benefit. And you failed with IMF. 2009, and you can cite older studies, but at some point the studies are so old they have nothing to do with the patient in your office. And so, what am I to think? This is costly, it's toxic, it's something that nobody really wants to do. It should only be offered if we can look someone in the eye and say, with good confidence, this does on average improve survival quality of life. We just can't say that, so it's gotta go, it's gotta go away. I'm sorry. Crossover very low in this dirty. Go check out that video the power of 100%. 100% is meaningful. There are parachutes. I break that all down into starlimib, And then the last point I wanna make to some people who say, um, you know, uh, I didn't like your tone in the video. Well, you know, complaining about tone is one of the lowest forms of rhetorical argument. You have to refute the central thesis of my argument. You can't do it. I encourage you to try, but uh, you're not gonna be able to pull that off. So you can complain about tone. But I urge the listener to ask themselves this, If they're more worried about the tone of my videos than the potential unethical conduct of the clinical trial and the human beings in that clinical trial, I would suggest doing some soul searching and asking, what is your priority in life? Because my heart goes out to that person who got BR and then didn't get ibrutinib second line, potentially long after ibrutinib was the de facto standard of care in the control arm of shine. My heart goes out to that person and that's the person you need to be thinking about. You can't be thinking about the fragile ego of the trialist. And to be honest, it's got to be fragile because when I look on Twitter, all I see is people praising each other endlessly. I mean, it's really, that's the baseline. So anything less than constant praise might be devastating for some people. So those are my thoughts. Let's hit this. Taclistomab. Taclistomab. Here it is. This is a cartoon that shows you what it does. Now, these cartoons are the gold standard of understanding a drug product. No, just kidding, of course. I mean, these cartoons are sort of some, you know, crude caricature of what we might think goes on in the cell. But of course, teclistomab has got that BCMA arm, and it's got a CD3 arm, so it recruits that CD3 cell to obliterate anything that's got that B cell maturation antigen on it. And the good thing is that plasma cells, particularly the cancerous plasma cells got that B-cell maturation antigen, but the bad thing is other important immune cells, including healthy plasma cells, they got that B-cell maturation antigen too, and they're gonna get obliterated too, and that's gonna to lead to what I believe is the crux of this paper. That's gonna to lead to some problems, so we'll talk about that. What was already known? Now, when they moved to the phase two portion of Teclistomab, they had already known the phase one results, as the authors, or the medical writer reminds me, Early on in the paper, and this is what they said, in the phase one of the multi-cohort study of teclistamab, Majestic, investigators identified the recommended phase two dose of teclistamab at a weekly subcutaneous injection of 1.5 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, taken indefinitely. Or I think the protocol actually said two years after the last person entered the study or something like that. Um, At this dose level, teclistamab showed promising efficacy in 40 patients with 65% having partial response or better. So they did do expansion at the target dose, at the phase two dose level, in the phase one. And arguably a 40% study with a 65% response rate is, I hate to say, and all at the same dose. It's kind of a phase two. I mean, it's kind of a phase two. Call me crazy. It's a phase two. You've established your response rate. And call me crazy. Once you've established a response rate, which is a measure of drug activity, it's time to look at drug efficacy. Now, what's activity and efficacy? I think this is the most misunderstood concept in cancer medicine. Activity means a drug can shrink cancer. A drug, when given, typically by itself, can shrink cancer in people who got cancer. And we know that Drugs that lack single agent drug activity generally do very, very poorly in cancer medicine. There's millions of such drugs, and only a handful have been approved. Read a paper in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology written by myself and Bishal Gaywali called drugs that lack single agent activity. And we talk about those drugs, and they generally had a median improvement in OS of 1.4 months. So that tells you that in this huge pyramid of drugs that just don't improve survival, the tip of the tip, the creme de la creme, are drugs that only improve survival 1.4 months. The drugs lack single agent activity. They tend not to be so good. So, I like drugs with activity. Activity for me is a useful screen of whether or not we have to pursue it in cancer drug development. And in fact, the man who invented the response rate, Charles Mortel, he did it to make this point. He wanted to debunk Latril and show it had no activity, and so he invented the response rate back in that dinner party, back with those marbles under that foam rubber of that mattress. That's a true story. you got to read the book Malignant. You want to learn more about where response rate comes from. You need to know it if you're going to practice in this field. Okay. Back to this paper. This has established this drug has activity. Once you establish activity, you gotta to move to efficacy. Efficacy, there's only two things people care about: living longer, living better. Living longer, living better. Living longer is overall survival. It's not PFS or PFS2 or DFS or something with a you know composite time to admit endpoint, it's living longer. And living better is health-related quality of life, or a really good patient-reported outcome that it's got some real validity. That's what living better is, okay? It's real simple. Activity is great. Activity is great. I love activity. Without activity, I'm not that interested. I'm bored. I'm asleep in the, I'm asleep in the session if I don't hear about activity. But without efficacy, I really don't know how to counsel my patients. And there have been drugs in the past with lots of activity that never had efficacy. And read the book Mulligan. I'll detail many such case stories of that. All right. So we know it has activity. How should cancer drug development proceed? What follows will be a bit of an argument that's borrowed heavily from chapter 13 of the book, Malignant. And it starts with a famous quote by Tom Chalmers, which is, randomize the first patient. It's really important to randomize, randomize, randomize when you care about efficacy. Tom Chalmers also has another quote that I don't think is in this book, but it might be in my other book. Um, One only has to visit the graveyard of discarded therapies to learn how many patients benefit from being assigned to the control arm. And what he means is that we don't always know that even very potent drugs may not make you live longer or live better. Let's just tell the story of iodine-131-tositumumab, or Bexar. I wrote a paper about this in JAMA Internal Medicine. This is a drug with a 65% response rate in lymphoma. It blasts lymphoma away. But yet, in multiple randomized control trials used for post-marketing commitment, the drug failed over and over again to improve any patient-centered endpoint. And thus, it was voluntarily withdrawn by the manufacturer, which is the FDA equivalent of being put in timeout for a long, long time. So that's not a good story. You can be very potent, but not improve outcomes. Read about Bexar. It's also in the book Mulligan, I think. I think. It's been a while since I've checked that fact. Okay. Time at home. When you're getting your teclistimab, you have this step-up dose and they're separated by a few days and then you get the administration of the first full dose and here's what it says hospitalization and pre-medication with dexamethasone acetaminophen diphenhydramine were required for each step-up dose and for the first full dose of teclistumab you know we got to acknowledge that participating in clinical trials comes with burdens and one burden is having to be in the hospital for this initiation i think it's a real burden and i think investigators have to ask themselves are we doing this to be safe sure but Are we burdening these patients who are at the end of life and value time in their house and not time, you know, in the waiting room of the hospital? I think we really have to ask ourselves what we're doing here. So we got to make sure, uh, and I suspect if this product eventually gets an authorization, a lot of people will want to follow the protocol. We got to ask ourselves what we're doing here, especially if the real world benefits are not going to be quite what you see in the trial, which is another sort of universal principle of cancer medicine. For the phase two, this is what I found so interesting, the power. They did the phase one. They got that 40 people. They got a 65% response rate, which is better than a lot of drugs. I'm going to tell you about that. And then they said, we're going to move to the phase two. And we determined that 100 patients would have 85% power to establish an overall response rate of more than 30% at a one-sided significance level of 0.025, assuming an overall response rate of the actual product of at least 45%. 85% power to, to detect this. 30% 30% response rate, which is what would get you sort of an FDA accelerated approval, more or less, historically, you know, seems reasonable. That's 100 patients. But if you really look at what they did, 85% power for 30% response rate, assuming 45% real response rate with 100. But what if you assume what you actually should be assuming, which is it has a 65% response rate? Isn't that why you did the dose expansion in the phase one so you could have some benchmark? What if you assume that was the response rate? And then what if you actually looked at what, assume that you would enroll 125 people, as they actually did enroll 125 people. So with 125 people, assuming a 60% response rate, what power do you have to at least clear a 30% response rate benchmark? And I think you're talking about, you know, I actually should have done it, but I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm doing a lot of things. Okay, I should have done a power calc. But I think you're probably talking, you entered with 85% power. You're probably talking 90, more realistically, 95 or 97% power for this. It's a lot of power. It's overpowered. Overpower is not good either. Overpower means you are using more patience than you need to do what you need, and you could be using those patience to do something different, more informative. You're using a lot of patience to once again reaffirm activity, but you could be using many of those patience to validate efficacy, and you have already established your activity, which no one will quibble with. It is active. Let me be the first to say, Teclistomab is an active drug, but is it effective? Is it efficacious? Is it does it have effectiveness in the real world? Those are questions I don't know because you have to have control arms for that. This is the response rate. Boom! Look at that. CR at the top, not too bad actually for you know at least I mean there's different cohorts of this study. You know there's the third cohort there, uh, that you had to I think also have BCMA therapy, but there's the cohort pentarefractory and the cohort of triple refractory. And this is a 63% response rate. And, you know, 40% is a CR. I actually think that's a pretty good response rate. I mean, I think that you're putting yourself very comparable to CAR-T. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But, you know, very good response rate. So really good response rate. It's a drug that generates response. It blasts plasma cells. If anything, maybe it's blasting too many. We're going to find that out. Maybe we're going to find out. Maybe it's blasting too many plasma. but It'll blast plasma cells. This is a better response rate than Dara when Dara came to market, single agent. Of course, it was different back then. They weren't maybe as pretreated as they are now. It's different than balantamab mafidotin with that wonderful mafedotin moiety, which has an, seems to love the eyeball. I don't know if this mafidotin loves the eyeball. I don't know why it loves the eyeball, but loves the eyeball. Selenexor, which is a drug that um, really is an atrocious drug, but we're talking roughly, you know, 25 to 35, 40% response rates for these products in sort of a comparable setting. That's the rough benchmark. I mean, you know, if somebody disagrees, put it in the comments, but I think that's a rough benchmark and that's what the FDA is going to happily approve, happily approve. They're going to happily approve that. CAR-T has a higher response rate, but don't you forget that there are many people who don't get the product. It's not a true intention to treat denominator. It is a modified intention to treat denominator. That's a mistake, of course. I think the FDA has failed society by endorsing the modified intention to treat denominator for CAR-T because the patient who comes into your office for counseling of CAR-T, they don't know they're going to be alive and well to get that CAR-T. They need to know the real intention to treat denominator, and that's the same, and that's what apples and apples is because here this product is ready. It can be given to you. So I think if you actually adjusted for that, maybe for Siltacel, possibly also for Cell. You know, I think it's not. It's going to be really in the same ballpark. This sixty-five percent It's the same ballpark. Um, you know, it's a good ballpark to be in in terms of activity. Efficacy, we'll come to that. But in terms of activity, it's a good ballpark. Okay. Safety. Here is the safety signal from blah blah. Oh, from March twenty twenty to March or to September twenty twenty one. A total of one hundred sixty five patients were enrolled at thirty five sites in nine countries to receive teclistamab at the recommended phase two dose of one point five milligrams per kilogram. Um, and then the data cutoff is March sixteenth, twenty twenty two there's something on my screen because the way I'm recording, I can't quite see the date from my memory. I'm thinking it's September. Um, My point here is just one that some of these people have gotten, have not gotten COVID vaccination. And some of these people must have gotten COVID vaccination. And I would really, really love to know how many is each, how many got vaccine, how many didn't, how many doses they got, what products they got. Did they get boosted? When did they get boosted? What was the timeline, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we have a cell paper about antibodies um after sort of bcma therapy and i think it was actually quite sort of sobering that they may not be generating robust antibodies but antibodies is not a perfect surrogate you know antibodies is a surrogate endpoint just like pfs is a surrogate endpoint a response rate is a surrogate endpoint the proof is in the pudding which is avoiding severe disease or death from COVID 19 and living longer living better multiple myeloma let's never forget clinical endpoints versus surrogate endpoints that's a different distinction um between activity and efficacy clinical versus surrogate endpoints um okay we'll come to that did they get vaccinated a total of 68 patients died And most deaths were attributed to progressive disease. But 19 patients died from adverse events, including 12 deaths from coronavirus 2019. Five deaths were considered by investigators to be related to teclistimab, including one patient who discontinued due to PML. That's not good. Two patients had COVID-19, one patient with hepatic failure, one patient with strep pneumonia. That's not good. And you're going to keep hearing that safety signal. Infection, infection, infection. Maybe we are too aggressively killing B cells, late maturation B cells, as well as plasma cells the adverse effects of the table. I'll read the quote first from the publication. Infections occurred in 126 patients, 76.4%, 74 patients had grade three or four infections. Hypogamma globulinemia occurred in 123 patients as determined by means of adverse events reporting, laboratory analyses, uh, low IgG levels. Um, This is real deal. This is a real, I mean, this is rip-roaring rates of infection. I mean, this is really, really bad infections. And now you have drug efficacy on on some endpoints. And then you have a safety signal that is not mediated through these endpoints, okay? It's not that the safety signal is it leads sometimes to myeloma to progress. No, it's an entirely um, non-myeloma pathway safety signal. And thus, it really shows you the limits of activity. Because activity is a scale that only measures the myeloma endpoints. And it doesn't really capture the non-myeloma endpoints. Look at that rate of neutropenia, anemia, lymphopenia, leukopenia, diarrhea, Grade three, I mean, I mean, CRS is an issue. As you can see, 72% have any grade CRS, but I'm much more worried about the infections. I think those are going to be maybe actually the Achilles heel of this product and maybe the thing that brings this product to its knees. Unlike CAR T, this is continuous. Unlike CAR T, this is continuous unlike CAR T, this is continuous. CAR T, you'll get your infusion, and even if you have immunosuppression from B cell maturation, antigen targeting, and depletion, you will recover with time, I think. Not perfectly, but you will to some degree. Here, you're getting it again and again and again and again, and you're going to have chronic um, permanent immunosuppression. I'm not permanent, but you're going to have prolonged immunosuppression that makes you even more vulnerable, as we all know, even more vulnerable to opportunistic infections. This is going to be very, very tough. The immune system is going to matter here a lot, and this is going to have implications for this product. Um, and if somebody's watching this who's a drug analyst, you're going to see, I'm going to walk you through some of these implications. This is, I, I, I mean, this is not, uh, I, I'm not saying this with an evidence-based, like, you know, the way I'm de- deconstructing a randomized control trial, for instance. I'm just saying this as somebody who spent a lot of time reading about uh, drug development and doing a lot of papers in drug development. I think Will not move up. I think it's very difficult to see a clear path for this to move all the way up front to the frontline setting. Immunosuppression may be even more profound as people try to do something like a teclistomab imid, dex, kind of uh, regimen up front. I mean, of course, anybody who makes any drug wants that upfront market share because that market share is much more vast and much more lucrative and much more longer than sort of the relapse refractory market set. But I think immunosuppression. Is going to be the deal breaker here, and I really worry that in a proper, sort of pragmatic, randomized control trial in the United States with uh, people in the frontline setting, I think there's a very high likelihood you're going to end up in a situation where there's a death signal here, and the trial will be halted. I don't know for sure, but I'm so worried about it that I would, I don't, I'm not. It's, I'm, I don't feel like I'm in a situation where I can say I see a clear path to the frontline market share. Okay, let me put it that way. I feel very worried that this is. Going to not have a path to the frontline market share. And I worry that this also has this infection is so deep that it has implications even for the refractory market share, at least even third line. Penta or beyond, there may be a place for it, but we'll have to think about that a little bit longer and harder. Randomize the first patient. That's what Tom Chalmers said. Randomize the first patient, Tom Chalmers. That's a very important principle of medicine. And when they use 125 patients to further corroborate what they already knew, that the response rate was robust, they are. Unfortunately, squandering patient resources, they're deeply overpowered to evaluate the response rate. It's more than what they needed to do to get USFDA US approval. It's more than what they needed to do. We know median survival in refractory or septorefractory is less than a year. There's a cohort of people with refractory myeloma that's less than a year. This study could have used many of these patients, maybe even half of these patients, and randomized them to teclistamab. Or investigator choice, a true unfettered choice. Run it only in the United States and power for overall survival. That would have been the better study. We knew this drug is active. Ain't no question about that. We had forty people treated in phase one at the target dose level and dose level two. We didn't need to further and and to um to to further corroborate that response rate. So much so that you are really, I, I suspect, you may even be in the high ninety percent power. You know, if you had actually put in plausible assumptions here. I'm not talking about post hoc, I'm not talking about post hoc power people. I am talking about pre-specified power based on more plausible assumptions and actual sample size that you actually knew you could easily get. You could have run a randomized control trial. This trial ran from March 2020 to the data cutoff of March 2022, 2 years, 24 months, 2 years, 24 months. Remember that. That's what it took to run this trial, an uncontrolled study that does not give you the information to adjudicate the safety signal against the benefit. 2 years, remember that. This is a paper by Emerson Chen and a few other people and myself, Estimation of Study Time Reduction Using Surrogate Endpoints Rather Than Overall Survival in Clinical Trials. It's a jam Internal Medicine paper. It's, it's, I like this paper a lot, you know? It took us a lot, I mean, for years we had been hearing the tired trope that waiting for survival takes too long. But what I always told people was, you're not being fair. In an individual person, of course, if I have a cancer and I get a drug, I either respond or don't respond first. I often progress second, and then I live or die third. That's me, right? But that's not the trial question. Trials have, as I show you in the figure here, an enrollment duration where many, many people are being enrolled and we're all being treated. And we not all responding right away. Some of us not responding for one month or five months or six months or seven months. And then you have to follow all of us into the future and you have some data cutoff for when you're going to look at the data. And the time from when you enroll the first person, when you had the data cut off, that's the time it ran took to run the study. And it turns out that once I have a response, if I had an uncontrolled study, the study doesn't halt. It often has to assess me to confirm that my response is not fleeting or transitory. It has to confirm that there is a duration of response to that response, and that takes a long time because you have to wait for the responders to be sort of a cohort that you can identify, and then you need to look to see the median duration of response among the responders, and that's often even longer than the median PFS or OS of the entire cohort. And so we, exploit this fact, this understanding of how an individual and a trial are very different, just like trial-level validation is different than individual patient validation of a surrogate endpoint, um, we exploited that to do a meta-regression study across many, many randomized control trials used for food and drug administration approval, and we literally asked in the third or later line setting, the bottom of my slide, if response rate is the primary endpoint of the study, um in a non-randomized study versus PFS in a randomized study or OS or patient reported outcome in a randomized study. What was the time on average it takes to generate that study result? And you see lo and behold, just as this study was two years, 24 months, 26 months. That's what our meta regression finds. But had they run the randomized control trial I think about in the pentorefractory setting that they really, really needed to run and the US FDA should have compelled them to run the right way to develop drugs as described in chapter 13 of malignant, had they done that, it would have probably taken exactly the same amount of time. This is not speeding drugs to market. I'll say that again. It's not speeding drugs to market. I don't believe that. That's something that people have repeated who have had a very superficial understanding of this space. This is a very complex regulatory question. I don't think that that's the case. We have done a lot of work to try to argue that it's not that case. This, I think, is not the kind of study we needed. We needed a randomized study, randomized the first patient. Tom Chalmers, he, his lessons were not really heeded. And you know, that's the real tragedy of evidence-based medicine, is that all of these principles have been known for decades, but sadly, they continue to be ignored. The last thing I'll say, medical writers, we thank Valerie and Linda of Eloquent Scientific Solutions, who provided medical writing support. Um, I always come to this point because I just think that that is not consistent with scholarship. Economists don't get other people to write their papers. Novelists don't get other people to write their papers. Philosophers don't get a medical writer. If you want to write this paper to report clinical trial results on clinicaltrials.gov, I have no objection to a medical writer filing that report. No objection. If you want to publish in the New England Journal of Medicine and use this paper to push for tenure, promotion, and academic success, insofar as it means the same thing for an economic, economics professor to have tenure and you to have tenure, you cannot use a medical writer. Writing is thinking, and thinking is writing, and writing is not statistics. It is thinking. And the way in which you present your own thoughts is very important to understand your scholarship. When you write a book, you write it yourself. You can't get a ghostwriter. You certainly can't get promoted, I think, as a philosopher, if you have a ghostwritten book. Maybe... You know, some president can get it for their biography, but they're not in the same business of scholarship in the academy. There are rules to scholarship. I believe this violates those rules. It also is not good for the community. These people are slick. They know how to write it. To be honest, the only person who could do better, I tell you, is gonna be me because I know how to be even slicker than them because I've read so many and I can think of very slick ways to put what they wanna say. If I turned my efforts to promoting this instead of actually trying to provide what i'm trying to do an impartial assessment of this product and all the other videos on this channel impartial and i gave credit to dostarlamab when credit was due i'm happy to give credit to products that actually do are amazing as that so far seems if i turned my attention to trying to fluff this up i could fluff it better than they have done because i think there's a number of things they could have said and there's some things around covid that they could have said a little bit differently to even sort of smooth that out in the reader's mind that they missed, missed opportunity for that medical writer Anyway, I'm not in that business. Not yet, though. You keep pushing me, maybe I'm gonna switch sides. No, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Not gonna switch sides, I doubt it. So, that is my, oh, I think there's a last slide. Closing thoughts. Ah, Yes, this is the key, this is the key, this is the key. I wanna talk to you about this. In the debates around these clinical trials that I've covered, which range from heavily critical, Shine, to heavily laudatory, Dostarlamab, some of the things that come up are people are participating in clinical trial investigators when those clinical trials are suboptimal the post protocol therapy is suboptimal the question is suboptimal the primary endpoint is suboptimal one of the things people said was you know sometimes they have to do it to try to get some drug up to their country etc um that is a devil's bargain because you get a little bit of just a pinch of the drug but you know the moment the drug is approved since you can't afford the the uh, the, the, the the standard of care post protocol therapy that that predated your trial, it's very unlikely you're going to afford this novel drug that your trial validated. In other words, these trials exploit the country just so they can seek U.S. regulatory approval. The people in that country still don't have access to any of those drugs. And in the U.S., we don't have access to data that actually informs the U.S. question. Neither group is actually sated. This is truly a devil's bargain that the industry has constructed. But this person was telling me that the average doctor there just doesn't have the clout or the leverage to push back. They got to do this. They got to play. Otherwise, they're going to find someone else to play ball. And then I said, well, what about the PIs? The PIs have the clout to say, no, we're not opening this trial. This is wrong rewrite your study and he says you know what it's a race to the bottom that there are so many pis out there that want these studies that somebody's going to concede and so you know you have a tragedy of the commons kind of scenario that somebody's going to accede to that so they're going to accede rather than let somebody else accede and take it and then i say you know they need to write op-eds they need to push back they need to do kind of meta research like what we're doing to try to demonstrate this is a problem and reform the system says that's not possible because then it will just be a way in which somebody else will undercut them You know, product and so then the only conclusion you come to from the system where all these actors are powerless to push back on the prevailing systemic failures if that is what you believe and i actually don't fully believe it i believe there are many ways in which investigators have more power he who has he or she um, or they who have access to the patients these people who have access to the patients have tremendous power to leverage the company to do an ethical study that's one point i believe but if you believe they don't have that power if you believe they don't have that power and you believe the system is hopeless as this person, as this person was arguing with me, then we will have to conclude that oncologists can never reform from within that trying to appeal oncologists to oncologists, to our better angels, trying to persuade within our field, it's not going to happen. I, but I actually do think this is probably likely to be true for a couple of reasons. One, it's not gonna happen because the financial conflict is so pervasive. The amount of money at stake is so much money. And this is a commodity that's very different than other commodities that are expensive. If I send somebody to the cancer patient's house to clean their dishes and do their laundry, I'm gonna have to hire tens of thousands of people and pay them to go to these houses and take care of these patients and I'm going to distribute wealth from the societal purse to many, many people, middle-class lives, I'm going to create a job program. When I take that money from many, many people and tax them and give it to the makers of teclistimab, I am taking lots of people's money, and I'm concentrating in the hands of a few wealthy shareholders. This is a regressive uh, financial product. It concentrates wealth in fewer people's hands. And insofar as any product does that, it becomes self-reinforcing in a system that perpetuates that. And that means that... The entities of the system may not be able to push back. They have many cases are receiving significant and we're talking about, you know, six-figure financial payments from pharmaceutical companies per annum while simultaneously running trials and writing the guidelines that decide which drugs are used where. This has been well documented. It's also documented in malignant and many other places. And as long as that's the case, I'm I'm very pessimistic that oncologists will ever be able to reform this problem from within. The only way there will be reform is if there's a public dissatisfaction with this issue and public applies tremendous pressure on politicians and politicians sign some bills and here's what the bill should do number one a ban on medical writers for publications in academic medical journals it's fine for clinicaltrials.gov that's a way to disseminate your results but if you're going to be in the new academic medical journal i don't think it's acceptable the pi needs to write it or find someone who at that institution who's hungry looking to write the thing number two a ban on personal financial payments from the companies to investigators um that is a huge conflict of interest that's the tobacco smoking of our lifetime when it comes to biomedical interpretation of data it needs to be fully halted and brought into light it just cannot continue it's such a deep corrosive conflict that people do not even have the ability to impartially judge anymore it, it, it is really an um it's 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 the marinade we're all floating in. We all know that the role of the industry is just too powerful in this space. We need some pushback. And three, we need non-conflicted clinical trials run by a non-conflicted clinical trials agenda that is meant to support Medicare and Medicaid decision-making around drug products. If we cannot allow, or sorry, If we cannot trust that the companies will conduct the most informative studies for the U.S. standard of care, and Medicare can no longer trust the FDA that that they would demand such evidence, just like they couldn't trust the FDA to do that with educanumab, Medicare must take power and fund a large non-conflicted trials agenda. Medicare has, CMS has, we're talking a trillion dollars of money that's flowing through this system per annum. We can take five percent of that and run a large non-conflicted clinical trials agenda. The right study to clistimab versus investigator choice in, in seven refractory or five refractory patients, powered for overall survival. That is the only study that can balance the um, immunity side effects from the possible response. I truly do not know if it will beat the other products because it could kill more people too. I just don't know, because you need randomized trial to know that. I do not know. It is a dangerous product. We could be very well repeating the is- the issue of the PI3K kinase inhibitor story in lymphoma, which we hopefully will have a paper out on. We have one paper out I think in Lancet Oncology coming, and we have, a, or it just came, and with David Benjamin, and we have another paper coming out on this space soon. Um, This is a huge vulnerability for drug regulation to have drug products that are very active but also very toxic in different ways, having off-target death that cannot be adjudicated by single-arm studies. We need randomized control trials. So, teclistamab, very, very active. This study, not what we needed. We needed randomized control trials. The US FDA, they need to start demanding these studies. And only the public can push for the real reforms needed to heal this field. This field will, if left unchecked, continue to swallow hundreds of billions of dollars in capital, they will be Continued incre- improvements in cancer outcome, of course, because some of the drugs do work to some degree, but some of the improvements in outcomes are driven by lead time bias, stage migration, Will Rogers' phenomenon, and other known biases that occur in this space, and we're gonna have both, but the overall net effect will be the dollar per quality adjusted life year will be cataclysmic, we're already reaching, as I described in the book Malignant, you know, the million dollar per quality kind of threshold, which is not sustainable. We are reallocating capital from other societal pursuits that are very important, such as early childhood nutrition and life. Um, for for this. And the last point about this, COVID, it's never going away. It's not going to go away. If you wore your N95 mask for 21 days, it's not going to go away. If you wore your N95 mask at the ASCO exhibit, but didn't wear it at any of the nighttime events, don't worry, that's normal. That's what people are doing, you know. COVID is going to have total penetration and then it's going to spread again and again and again. There's gonna be waves of COVID. This is a very dangerous drug to approve in a post-COVID world. It was a dangerous drug to approve probably in a pre-COVID world because of the immune system, but it's gonna be dangerous. If you get a lot of people and you get a wave there's something that could happen. I, have, I need to see if the vaccine can counteract it, but I'm very pessimistic. This is a profound depleter of the B-cell maturation antigen. That's on bad things, but it's also on some good things. And when you deplete something that's also on some good things, you run that risk. So this is ticklistimab This is Plenary Session. If you think you can get content like this anywhere else, I welcome you to go there. Go there and get the content. But you're not going to get this kind of analysis anywhere else. I know because if I had could get that kind of content that I like... I wouldn't make my own content because I'm busy and this takes too much of my time, too much of my time, too many hours per paper, and this is the first week that I've ever had to admit, even though I run that, you know, a lot of things, Substack, podcast, video, etc. First week I've ever, and I run clinic and I'm on rounding, the first time I ever must admit that I'm a little bit tired just because of reading all these papers and thinking about it. Um, But also energized because it's really important, critical appraisal is the most important skill Evidence-based medicine is the basic science of medicine. So that's what you get on this channel. If you like this, like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. If you listen on the audio feed, come on, go on YouTube. You got to see the pics. You got to see the visuals. That's it. Those are my thoughts. Until next time.